Hello and welcome to episode 153 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the Keeb master, Shane Beeps. Shane, what kind of keeb you got there? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, hold on, I'm just, oh, there, okay, am I unmuted now? Am I, am I unmuted? Okay, hold on, I had to, uh, I had to mute because I was, I was click clacking while uh, we were getting this episode going. I got to furiously type a top eight from a recently announced tournament, or a recently announced top eight from this weekend's tournament, so bear with me. How are you, Stanislav? I'm doing just fine. This is giving me flashbacks of having to turn in assignments, proofreading essays the morning they're due. Sorry, sorry, I'm looking up some. I'm looking up some Oracle text. Is that like a 3D printed keyboard? Is that one of those custom, custom clickety clackers? No, it's just off the shelf. But anyway, it's good to see you all. Let's, uh, man, this is this is gonna this is gonna be a good app. This is gonna be a wild app. Definitely outside of our comfort zone. Also with us, the Godfather, the Comfy King himself, Dave Harbarger. This is maybe the most confused I've ever been playing a deck. Gotta be honest. Dave, I share your confusion looking at that V-neck, mm-hmm. like down to your belly button, basically. You know, that's what happens when you do house projects and have kids and forget to change your shirt for two <laughs> days and your friend points it out on a podcast, which is an audio medium and nobody cares about what shirt I'm wearing on an audio medium. There's only three people in the Twitch stream, Stanislav. <laughs> I care. This It affects my mentality. I'm sorry that it's a loose V. I've got that like bad... There's a whole TV ad about having the loose V, isn't there? I think so. Where do you guys like to get your basic t-shirts? You know, n- not that screen printed stuff, but just a simple single color. Banana Republic. Target. Mm. I just buy a lot of clothes at Target because I'm a dad. <laughs> That's what we do now. You know, I go Gap. Yeah. You fall into the Gap? I fall into the Gap. I used to do Target, but all their collars would be itchy and they would give me rashes on my shoulders and neck. And they're loose if you wear them for two days, apparently. Your friend might point that out. I like to just get my magic product to Target because that's where I open my best packs, my best collector boosters. I have so many sad stories of being like, yeah, I'll get a collector's booster at Target. Why not? And then I get in my car and open it up and I'm like, well, this was a waste. They always are. At least they're pringly. On this week's episode, we are doing one of our patent pending patented deck dives with the Jolly Green Giant itself. Yeah, this is the long-awaited second installment of a series we started many months ago about decks we hate that we're playing anyway, known as We Did It For Science. This is We Did It For Science, episode two, the show within a show. Is this, is this really only the second time we've done <laughs> it's this? It's only the second time we've done it. Well, I'm glad we got the name of it before we had like an idea of how frequently we do it. That's the important thing, the show within the show. Yeah, and as Stan said, in this episode, we are going to be talking about... Primeval Titan, I can't even believe it. And not just any Primeval Titan, Amulet Primeval Titan, the third. Look, I only agreed to this because Stanislav was so convincing when he was like, we should do this. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I, was, I was just basically like, I know, I know Stanislav will take the reins on this one. And all I have to do is ride in the sleigh and be delivered like a gift to this episode on Sunday night and really just complain a lot in our in our discord I know no, it's, it's it's look it's it's not complaining it's confusion is it, is it I had to make a choice today it was do I want to buy some fresh papaya at Whole Foods or do I need to walk Shane through keepable hands in Amulet Titan why not both I chose papaya 
Yeah, good. You and I spent some time on uh, playing each other on Moto on Friday night where we were trying to talk through keepable hands for me too, where I was like, what is? what am I even doing? And guess what? We're going to teach you the meager learnings that we've had in the last week, week or so of playing Amulet Titan today on this edition. That's right. It's the joys of playing lots of lands, analyzing the correct number of lands to put in a deck that's mostly lands, and really some of our absolute favorite mana-producing lands that this deck runs. Guys, I'm starting to think, is this a lands deck? It, it's two things. It's a lands deck, and it's also a deck that you really just love to... Um, you really just love to take screen grabs and show them to your friends what you did on turn three. Because yeah. that, that was worth all of the losses for me was, you know, we're going to describe our favorite screen grabs later on. You're, oh, you're good. Oh, good. Before all that, though, let's get through some housekeeping. Shout out to the newest members to join the Dive Down Nation, Sam G and Stephen P. Thank you both and welcome, new citizens. Also, big thanks and shout out to Pucky Fuss. Maybe it's Pukey Fuss for leaving us a new review on iTunes. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. And if you would like to support us directly, you can find us at patreon.com slash the dive down, where we have a number of different tiers for different uh, levels of uh, donations per episode. And love to give a little update. I think that Shane's giving me the, the signs right now to either vo- Vogue, potentially, or to talk about deck boxes. Talk talk about the rectangle. Talk about the rectangle. Well, we did get an update from Legion Supplies about shipping for the uh, the deck boxes. And you may remember a month ago or so, I said that I thought that these would be ready in the spring. That's probably when they're going to show up. Right now, the ETA of when we will have these is looking like April according yeah. to Legion, and we will send them out as soon as we can after that. So never fear. People who are owed them, we will get them to you. Uh, we're keeping a list. We're checking it twice. Yeah, but it's looking like it's going to be, you know, late spring before people really get these. Yeah, the you know, the, the literal slow boats. So it's going to be shipped around the world once or twice. So bear with us, but, you know, we're, we're it's, it's out of our hands now. I always thought that podcasting would kind of protect us give us a little immunity from the supply chain but yeah no no one can escape the supply chain you can't escape it i mean remember when when we were trying to buy new audio interfaces a few months ago stan and everything was sold out yeah Uh, also sponsored by mana traders you know them you probably love them the best Manatraders.com. You sign up code the dive down 2021. I really hope we get a 2022 because otherwise it's going to be confusing if we get the dive down like 2024. So it's not going to work. So I uh, so hope they work with us or they fire. I hope we don't, I hope they don't fire us too. That, that's another reason we'd like to get a 2022 coming up, but yeah, sign up code the dive down 2021, 50% off your first two months. Thank you. Yeah. And now before we get into things we hate, let's talk about things we love which are modern magic tournaments. We have two to talk about really, really quickly. The first one, Shane did did a lot of this, so I'm going to I'm going to be the host. Shane's going to be the talker. Stan's going to pop in and give us his his hot takes here and there. Uh the first one we're going to talk about really quickly is the Energy Series 5K Modern Trial Milwaukee, which is actually finishing up as we record this episode right now. And there's a yeah, main the finals re- are on. And the main reason we want to talk about this is why, Shane. Well, one of the citizens of the Dive Down Nation Jess is in the top eight, was in the top eight, unfortunately. She was just eliminated from it just, uh, you know, 15 minutes ago or so. Daggers. So sorry sorry for the spoilers, but Jess was on her trusty Azorius control 
I know that she has been uh, meaning that for quite some time, comes in with a lot of good insight in our modern channel on the Discord, a fountain, font, pillar of knowledge in the community. Well, congrats to Jess for making the top eight, but let's talk about what actually was in the top eight. So as Shane mentioned, the finals are going on right now, and it is Sultai Infect versus Orzov Infect, also known as Hammer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Honestly. Gotta so, go fast. So two decks trying to go fast with each other, probably minimal uh, interaction, but I guess both of them have some uh, we'll see. That that should be an interesting one. But here's what the top eight was. Uh, Colin Bradley on four-color Omnath. Bill Caminos on Rakdos Luris. Jacob Siegel on Sultai Infect. Cody Burton on Golgari Yogmoth. Dominic Polarcio Poler on Orzov Hammer. Sky Bauerschmidt Sweeney on GDS. Will Kruger, of course, of course, of course, Will Kruger. Orzov Hammer. Jess Robkin, as we said, on Azorius control. Did you know? I guess you know on the in the abbreviated season of NRG last time, Will Kruger top aided six of the ten events they held. Bonkers. A true true killer, Will Kruger. How can you be that good at magic? Speaking of it? Will Kruger, well known Titan player for a long time who is not currently playing the deck very much. But yeah, I mean he's on record just saying Hammer is the best deck in modern. Yeah. I mean it, we'll we'll have more to talk about that in just a second, I think, because we do have Saturdays, December 11th, the Modern Showcase Challenge. And there might have been a few players on Hammer Variants. Can you believe it? Hmm. How many? Well, we'll get into that in a second, Dave. Okay. Hmm. But first off, I want to thank Bamzing and AG Size 8. Man, I'm Aegis Aziz. Yep. Thank you. Aegis there we Aziz. go. That, yep. that makes a lot more sense when you look at it as two different words. Uh, you make doing the work of talking about this stuff so much easier. They went through and got all the six and three or better decks from the tournament by like literally just looking at replays and seeing what's going on while the tournament's going on. So thanks again, of course, Bamzing and Aegis Disease. If you forgot, these showcase challenges happen about three times a season and seasons are basically about four month long time spans. And so you have to have QPs to enter these, 40 QPs, in fact, and the top eight finishers get invited to the showcase qualifier and they have good prizes. So why not? Can I call my shot? Do it. Yeah. I didn't get enough QPs to make it into this showcase challenge, but I'm going to see in the next one. Oh yeah, you got it. I mean, you have like 30 something, right? Well, they're all about to reset, but yeah, I was was like 10 shy. And now that I understand how to earn QPs and how Prelims factor into that. Yes, playing pretty well helps. But, you know, there's other ways to earn them as well. I had never really set that goal for myself to actually earn QPs for any specific purpose. Now that I know what it all culminates into, I'm going to get there. I'll see you in four months, Moto. I mean, honestly, Stanislav, we know that your goals have been to win and do well at real events. And, I mean, honestly, I think the players that play on these events on Magic Online are probably better than a lot of players we're going to see at our local paper tournaments, just because it's just it just funnels all those people right to the, right right into MTGO. So that's a great place to test your mental. I guess, but Jess and Will Kruger play at a lot of the tournaments I go to. So oh, just run then. Yeah, Chicago is definitely a pretty <laughs> yeah. pretty okay play scene. All right, so we had 371 players. And we have 66 of those decks that went 6 or 3 and better. And let's talk about the 6-3 or better meta. We have 9 Hammer decks, or about 13.5%. We have 9 Azorius Control or Azorius Control Variant 
style decks, another 13.5%. 12%, eight decks, isn't Murktide. 7.6% or five four color blink decks. And so effectively, these are like the four color Omnath style control decks, but there's no actual counter spells in the main besides a few force of negations. But you add the Eternal Witness and Ephemerate quartets along with like the singleton time warp and so you're really trying to get a lot of blink value off of all your elementals and eternal witness and ice fang coatl all kind of ways to get value off of your ephemerates in this deck while still having sort of a controlling and inevitability long game yeah this is basically the other we did it for science deck from earlier omnath four color control yeah, stuff i forgot about that yeah and then we also have five colors of Grixis Shadow, 7.5%, 6% Jun Saga, 4.5% Grixis Luris, also 4.5% Teamer Footfalls, and then a bunch of two ofs or 3% of Golgari Yogmoth, four color Omnath Control, Amulet Titan, Living End, and Is It Control, and then a bunch of one ofs, about 15% one ofs. I think that's either 10 or 11 of those. You know, some stuff you might expect, like you know, the stuff you see, Scales, or Demir Mill, or Eldrazi Tron, or Mono Green Tron, or Dredge, those kind of things that still just stick around and and might do pretty decently in a tournament, but might not top 32. So, y'all, what do you think about this 6-3 or better meta? The pretty good decks. It's pretty diverse, too. You know, the top half of the decks, Hammer Control, Murktide, Blink, and Shadow. Mm -hmm. I mean... It's better than just seeing like one deck eat up a quarter of the pie and then two other decks doing the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a fair way to look at it. I was, you know, we've seen plenty of metas where it's like 20%-ish of a of a meta game is is a singleton deck. So 13.5% is, is pretty okay, especially when the other one is so different than it. Going from Hammer to Azorius Control are pretty, pretty big swings. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this just kind of feels like what modern is right now. There's nothing that's too big of a surprise to me in this one. You know, maybe the fact that there's a lot of Murktide back is a little bit of a surprise, but I think that, you know, it's all yeah, good. Murktide? Yeah, I mean, the thing for me is, like, Hammer is still the top dog after months of being the top dog. Like, it's it's saying something, I think, specifically about Hammer, that we've seen a lot of metagame shifts and cycles and sort of in, internal rotation of, of what's doing really well and what's fighting what's doing well. But Hammer has stayed up there as, like, just the best deck or one of the two best decks and most represented decks in tournaments like these over and over and over again. And that I don't think we can say about anything else in the meta game so far. I think it's also interesting that 25% ish of the meta is feasibly control. Mm -hmm. We've got Azorius based control. We've got four color blank. We've got four color Omnath. We've got, is it control all showing up here? And I think just a few months ago, that would be, have been kind of like a pipe dream to say like, Hey, like we're going to see 25% of a competitive modern meta be controlling decks. Yeah. It's been bouncing around for sure. I mean, the thing that's interesting is I'm, I'm kind of trying to take a look through the, the deck list right now and do the control control list playing the chalice game or not anymore. The blue white decks, it looks like there's a couple and the 10th place deck from MJ0202. Um, so it looks like maybe people are still keeping up with that version, which I think can be pretty good. Um, you know, it's kind of like playing a blood moon deck, but a different axis in some ways. <laughs> And then also things of note that I saw was like burn was kind of just off the, just like completely gone 
not even in our one ofs was there a burn deck. Mm-hmm. And so that's not even top 32. This is like what top 66, just no burn at all. And then there's only two footfalls decks in the top 32 and only one Jund Saga deck in the top 32. So we saw a pretty big consolidation of kind of the good decks, I think, and also like a few of the, the, the smaller fish in this pond as well are showing up in the top 32. But I think a little, just like a month or so ago, we, we would plan to see a lot of footfalls and a lot of saga in our top 32s, but not here. So let's, let's talk yeah. about the top eight. Let's do it. Let me, uh, since I read off the other top eight, maybe I'll just read this one too. Do it, Dave. Zach attack on four color blink featuring Yorian. Uh, deck that Shane was kind of doing some description of earlier. So I don't think we need to linger on that one. Pensur on is it Murktide in second place? Looks like what you'd expect. I mean, nothing too spicy about this particular build of Murktide. The most interesting thing to me was I don't think there was any main deck force of negations. And so I think that's something that at least recently I would expect to see maybe a little bit more in terms of like, hey, we're afraid of Belcher, which again, there was no Belcher mm-hmm. in this entire uh, top 66 at all. So as soon as Belcher rises up, either it's being hated out or it's just not there. And so the uh, Penser was just not afraid of it, I guess. Yeah. Interesting. They do have two dress down on the sideboard, which is pretty interesting to see out of a blue red deck as well. I hadn't noticed too much of that seeing play outside of Grix's shadow, basically, but that's been stocked to be honest. Has it? Okay. Yeah, for quite a while now. Just because dress down is a really great answer to Karnstrucks. Yeah. Uh, the the elementals, it's very versatile across the board. There you go. Third place, Gabesman on Yogmoth. We got another Yogmoth deck in the top eight here. This deck sticking around comes and goes, but people people love it. They keep coming back to it. This is another one of those builds that was the single Geralt's Messenger list that was originally kind of uh, made popular by Demonic Tutors online probably, I don't know, six weeks ago or so. But um, it's cool. Heavy on Grist. Big on Grist these days. Uh, fourth place, Rostov with Jund Saga. Nothing too surprising in this list. Fifth place, DeKing3603 on one of our first Hammer decks that is in here. Nothing too interesting about this particular version of Hammer, but the sixth place deck is Selesnia Hammer. So a new build that we haven't really seen too much. Um, most notably in here, four main deck Ancient Stirrings to help you draw into some colorless cards if you want. Hmm. Yeah, I just, I'm curious why we haven't seen more of a splash like this where it's like, Hey, I need to like kind of really dig through my deck. I want to find certain tech pieces. Uh, you get access to things like veil of summer in the side guy is blessing in the side for a really bad mill matchup. Uh, maybe it's been underexplored or maybe this, this player has just, just got a little lucky. I mean, I definitely think that there's something to be said for, you know, there's always been a lot of talk about what's that last slot in hammer going to be. Is it going to be ingenious Smith? Is it going to be something else? The idea of just saying, I'm going to use a real cantrip instead of trying to play a creature that sort of does a medium version of a cantrip spell. is pretty interesting. Um, it does not, you know, it can't get every single card that you want, but it can get a lot of important ones, including Urza saga, a hammer, or, you know, if for some reason you need uh, some other some other artifact. But it does it does kind of get you what you want between those two things. Also gets you lands. One of the things they cut were a couple lands. Yeah. So you can potentially just keep a you know a single green source and then ancient stirrings will will frequently find that second land. Yeah. But yeah, I haven't played a ton of hammer, of course, but this seems like a good evolution of that build. Seventh place, Howderho 
on Red White Prowess. Hey, it's the deck that I played last that week deck? at the store, store Championships. The Doomwake list. Yeah. Only thing that's super in- different about this one is that I never found a way to include two Fury in the build that I was playing main. I had all my Furies in the sideboard, and this person has it split two main, two sideboard. Otherwise, it's pretty much the same deck that I was playing last week as well. You got your Blood Moons, you got your Chandra Dress to Kill, you know, Dragon's Rage Channeler, Monastery Swift Spear, Ragavan, Soulscar Mage, Light Up the Stage, Dart Bolt, Prismatic Ending. Maybe this deck is going to hang around. I think that I've seen a number of people talking about it on online, and so I'm glad to see it continuing to be reasonable. So what do they cut to make room for those Furies? I, I think a, one Prismatic Ending, maybe? One land and one Prismatic Ending is what it looks like to me. I think the build that I was playing was 21 lands, and this one's only 20. I see. But yeah, that's my guess. And even the sideboard is pretty close to the sideboard that I had, although by having two Furies in the main, you have space for Season Pyromancer. Also, they're playing Relic of Progenitus instead of uh, Soul Guide Lanterns that I stole from Stan that uh, in their sideboard, mm-hmm. which is an interesting take, too. Um, still has Blossoming Calm. And the Shinka, Bloodsoaked Keep, it's only, it, it's just a, a mountain that sometimes makes your Ragavan yeah. hit a little better? Yeah, all it does is it lets you attack into situations where you might have to trade, basically. Hey, Obosh, Obosh is legendary, okay? Oh, yeah. You can give Obosh first strike as well. But by the time you're playing Obosh, usually you don't you don't care about stuff like that. Look, but Dave, you can give Obosh first strike <laughs> as well. Yeah, it's true. It is true. All right, yeah. Well, I like this deck. Uh, maybe maybe I'll keep playing it as well. Eighth place, finally. Thurf on Gruel Scales. Gruel Scales. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? Wasn't there a Gruel Scales deck that top aided something recently too? I think so. I mean, it's just kind of effectively adding goblin bombardment in the main like the singleton goblin bombardment mm-hmm. which lets you one have a sacrifice engine like or just a sacrifice uh enabler something mm-hmm. that lets you pop some creatures you don't mind dying to either make make tokens go on to your ozolith or come or like your hangerback walkers sort of become a bunch of thopters and then pop all the thopters with bombardment to do a bunch of damage. So it allows like some unique styles of wins with that singleton bombardment that I think is pretty darn cool. Mm-hmm. And of course, you sometimes want red mana uh, randomly for the Zabaz, destroy target artifact you control, activated ability, and then you get access to a few more red sideboard cards if you want. I think they are only using Ancient Grudge, which is perfectly smart and cromulent card. <laughs> What do we think of that top eight? Sweet. Yeah. A couple of cool decks. Others, uh, some hammer and some other stuff, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've got we've got some cool decks and then some not cool decks. And I'll let you decide which ones I think are cool, which ones I, I think are not cool. But I do like seeing the Red White Prowess deck. Um, I do like seeing the Selesnia Hammer deck, of course. I do think there are some other cool decks to explore in this top 32 as well. Stan, unless you had thoughts on the top eight. Well, yeah. I mean, just, just to answer Dave's questions. I, yeah, I guess you should probably. I guess you give you an opening for that. I think one of the interesting things about this top eight is that we both see familiar favorites pretty much across the board. You know, these are all decks that perhaps they've come and gone like Hardened Scales. Sure, it won Vegas, but it's not like it's been a mainstay in the Magic Online competitive environment. Right. That said, I do feel like this is a very innovative top eight across either individual decks like, you know... Um, Hardened Scales becoming Gruel or Hammer becoming Selesnia or even just like individual pieces here and there. Um, for instance, Outland Liberator 
you know, being a one-off in the Yawgmoth list, it's something that we played in Titan 2. I think that this is just a new card that people are starting to recognize as a, as a potential modern tool. So I think we're just, because the format has been so familiar to us pretty much since MH2, we are actually starting to see people find little ways to level up the decks that are proven entities as well. Or maybe even in Prowess's case, utilize some even newer cards to keep attacking the meta. Mm-hmm. Things are continuing to evolve a little bit. It's just not always, it doesn't always mean that there's a new new deck, right? It just means, it does mean that things shift just from getting a new card here and there, which I think is good, yeah. I think we also had some cool decks ink to explore along with the two in our top eight. Uh, 18th place, there was TSP Gendrick on a low-to-the-ground Grixis control deck featuring Luris. I think we've seen things like this. It just always blows my mind that basically a four Ragavan, four Snapcaster, and a pile of spells is just kind of like a deck that can be played and and do well in modern. You know, a couple Clean the Dusk, some Consider, and Drown in the Lock, and KCOM, and Unholy Heat. All of the counter spells are in the sideboard besides the Drown in the Lock main. Drown, Drown in the Lock, such a good card. Such a good card. It's just a, a beating. I would say this deck is hard mode, kind of personally. <laughs> like it's 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 threat light, you know, it's a little bit light on control on the main, like you said, but it has lots of creature interaction. It's got some graveyard interaction and cling to dusk. You know, TSP Gendrick is a control master. Yeah. Super well known player. And so th- this is a deck that I feel like is probably not for the faint of heart, but Still, it's a cool build. You know, a lot of these uh, Grixis Luris decks definitely do have at least one more threat than what we're looking at here. Generally, they have Dragon's Rage Channeler, for yeah. example, and this one does not, which nope. is a huge surprise. I feel like the players that can do the most winning with the least creatures are sometimes like they're, they know how to maneuver themselves to where they have the final pieces standing and then win with those final pieces. And I think that's, like you said, that's, that's magic on hard mode these days is like, Hey, I'm going to use every piece to its, its fullest potential. And then I'm going to end up with the, the final creatures in the board and just plink you to death with my two ones. Mm-hmm. We also had uh, in 20th place was Lori Wa on prison Tron which is pretty wild. There's four Karn the Great Creator, four Thought Not Seer, four S- Spellskite, main deck. You are wow. not equipping your hammer, my friend. Uh, also, four Chalice of the Void, three Ensnaring Bridge main, along with many of the other kind of usual Karn the Great Creator wishboard cards in the side to complete the prison element. You know what else is really nice in this deck is the four Serum Powder. Oh, yeah. Which synergizes with Karn because if you pitch hands to it for you know free mulligans, you can then get all these artifacts that you're probably pitching because that's all this deck is with Karn later on. Yeah, it's brilliant. Mystic Forge. Four Mystic Forge in the main of this deck. I mean, Mystic Forge is sweet when you're just kind of trying to plow through your deck and cast a bunch of stuff off the top of the deck. I mean, can't- pay one life to exile the top card of your library so that you can later go back and get it with Karn Beautiful. as well. Beautiful. So yeah, this uh, this is definitely the kind of deck that a certain player is drawn to, and more power to Loriwa for doing it. Awesome. All right. Well, fun breakdown of a couple of events that are going on right now. Some interesting new decks that people are trying. Now it's time for us to eat our vegetables, though. <laughs> Let's go to the segment where we're going to talk about everybody's favorite Jolly Green Giant. Primeval Titan. Stay with us. All right, 
Well, as we teased and talked about many times now, welcome to the second installment of We Did It For Science. And we did this for science. We did it for you. You know, I was talking to someone in the chat the other day, in the Discord server the other day, and they said that our Discord was anti-Titan biased. And you know what? I couldn't disagree. Why is that? Why do you think the three of us needed to do this for science rather than at any point kind of latching onto this deck for personal interest reasons? Hmm. Is it the green cards? Well, Dave I mean, does hate green. Infamously, I didn't own any green cards that were modern playable for a very, very, very long time, for one thing. I I think in all seriousness, the reason that I I don't gravitate towards this deck, and that I honestly, I'll just say this net right now, I did not enjoy playing this deck, is that it's it's a different kind of problem to solve. And I think if you like putting these pieces together in the particular way that Titan asks you to do, it's a pretty cool puzzle. Like in terms of your interaction between a lot of different pieces, was it like there is a, a lot of different ways to do a lot of different things with this deck, primarily land-based and land sequencing based and the way they interact with different creatures that you have um, or the amulet of, amulet of Vigor on the board. And you can really think one or two or three turns ahead and you're doing that anytime you're playing a good game of Magic. But in this, you're thinking about how much mana can I make and when and what pieces are going to allow me to do that. And for me personally, it's like not the puzzle I really like solving. But I think for a lot of people doing that combined with the really cool payoffs and sort of toolbox aspect, then there's a lot there to enjoy. This from the guy who owns Russian Tron. <laughs> Tron, Tron is baby is baby amulet. Yes. Tron is kind of baby amulet. Tron is baby I will amulet. Say, you know, the other thing is like, I just don't generally gravitate towards combo decks. And I think that from the very beginning of when I was into modern amulet, not amulet, but Titan, and then later amulet Titan, slightly later amulet Titan was always kind of like a boogeyman deck. That was kind of like this thing that I didn't totally understand what was going on, but it was always pretty good. And people are always talking about parts of it getting banned and then stuff was banned. And so it just always kind of felt like not my thing. And so this whole time that we've been on the show, we haven't, you know, we've never had one of us break through to this huge, huge, like constellation of decks that is built around what's inarguably one of the most powerful cards that's available in modern right now, especially with the enablers that primetime has. So for us, you know, when we think about how to approach a deck with the history, the pedigree, and all that fan base that we talked about of Titan from as people from the outside, like how are we really thinking about this? You know, a lot of times when we do these dive downs, we do a big history of the deck. Mm -hmm. I, we're not going to talk about that too much today because I think people mostly know where it's from. Also, if you want to hear a really good breakdown of the history of Primeval Titan decks, you should listen to check out Dominaria's Judgments with Ari Lax. And Dom Harvey, they recently did an episode that was a dive in, in how to play Amulet. We're obviously coming at it from a totally different angle from they are. Yeah, we're, we're, we're coming at it from the bad player point of view. Yes, exactly. Or, or the, the, the newer player point of view to this deck. Right. Um, Those two people are actual Amulet masters, especially right. Dom Harvey. And I think our lens is what was learning this deck like and what right. should people sort of anticipate and have to come to terms with if they want to pick it up for the first time. And then Dominaria's judgment and a lot of Dom Harvey's articles on SCG can 
take you to that next level after you've maybe tried it out, kind of started to understand what you're doing with these cards and lands yeah. and need to find additional resources to truly level up as a Titan pilot. Yeah, absolutely. And so we were just talking about Primeval Titan has long been a staple of the modern meta, basically since the inception, so much so they knew that Titan was going to be powerful in modern that when Modern was created, I believe that Valakit was pre-banned in Modern if it was not in one of the very first bannings in Modern. Pre-banned? I sometimes forget which one it was, because they, they had some early bans that felt like pre-bans. But not Cloud Post, though. You can, you can have Cloud Post, but not Valakit. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is that Titan and Valakit had just been in Standard together during during that time. And then later, after Valakit rotated out, Titan was still good uh, later on as, as a deck that was kind of a foil to some of the Callblade stuff that was going on at the same time. So don't forget that Valakit, Amulet of Vigor, and Primeval Titan were all in Standard during M11. Uh, of course, Amulet didn't really figure into that at all because the Bounce Lands weren't in Standard at that time. And then it just kind of went on from there. You know, Valakit was unbanned. Summer Bloom came into the deck, and then Summer Bloom was banned. Once Upon a Time was huge in the deck, and then it was banned. I mean, it's, that's skipping a huge era between Summer Summer Bloom and Once Upon a Time. It's probably three or four years of time in between those two things. Dryad of the Elysian Grove was printed. Urza Saga was printed. Titan is always there, always doing new things, always trying new things. I, I like that this very many one-sentence history lesson just completely ignores that Field of the Dead used to be a card. Ugh, I don't even want to talk about Field of the Dead. In between Dryad and Urza's Saga, there was Field of the Dead. That's true, too. You rem- remember that uh, one of the, the Denver events we went to and we all played in the PTQ? Yeah. And I was playing dredge i believe and i went up against uh titan playing with field of the dead and i was like well it's just i have have no chance i have no chance to defeat to defeat this monster of a deck i'm so glad that card is gone just creeping chill bro creeping chill creeping chill creeping chill flashback creeping chill there we go we got there did it so given the volumes of writing about it the number of different lines this week on the show we're mostly going to be talking about two parts of titan what we thought about when we picked up the deck as a bunch of just first-timers, basically. Although Stan did do a dive down on Titan in like episode 16 of the dive down. So it's been three years or so no, we, since episode, we really looked episode at Titan. Episode 10. 10. Episode okay, 10 wow. is Prime Real Estate. That was, <laughs> it was one of my best titles. I, I intentionally did not listen to that episode. I was very nervous of what what we said then. And I think one of the appeals of revisiting the deck now is we're all better players and better thinkers too. It's also a different deck, right? It's in also a different, different deck in a different metagame. We have MH1 yeah. and MH2. That's right. All right. So, what's Primetime all about? Primeval Titan decks all about? Primarily, and with some really extreme caveats, if you're first starting to think about how to pick up this deck, this deck wants to do two things. And in the <laughs> sense that Tron likes to make Tron, make Tron, make Tron, and have a payoff. Titan wants to cast Titan, cast Titan, cast Titan, and play Sweet Lance. Yeah. And it wants to do it as fast as possible. It's going to make you and jump through different, make it happen. different kind of hoops to cast Titan. That's right. So why? What's so good about Prim- Primeval Titan? Like, how, do, how does that make it work? Other, you know, other than the obvious, the fact that it brings so many extra resources to your board when you play it, there's kind of three different game plans in when I look at Amul- at the Amulet Titan list that are going on right now, there's kind of three different primary game plans, right? And let me know if you guys disagree with this. 
chat. Let me know if you disagree with this. There's basically the old amulet kill, which is I'm going to ramp into a Titan using bounce lands and amulet, and I'm going to use uh, Slayer Stronghold and get Boros Garrison, give my, give my Titan uh, haste, make it an 8-6, Vigilance, haste, attack for that. If you have double yeah. attack for that 8, get two more lands. If you have double amulet, then you can go and get Sun, sun Home, you can yeah. give a double strike and you can hit someone for 16. Yeah, that's and a so double those, one. Uh, you, can, you can get 20. You can get 20 off of that, um, I believe. Yeah, if, if you can you can work it out sometimes so that you get 20 as well. Because if you do have double amulet, then you can give it plus 2, plus 0 oh, twice. Yes. And then do Slayers, uh, not Slayers, do Sun Home, give a double strike and hit someone for 20 on turn 3, basically. You, you can win on turn 2 with this deck, but yeah. that's neither here nor there. Would, yeah. would you consider this like the, the default... Like, I'm going to get a Titan. I'm going to get Boros Garrison and Slayer's Stronghold. I'm going to swing for eight with Vigilance and Trample and just start clocking your life and getting lands into play. Maybe getting, like, Teleria West to then get another Summoner's Pack to then get, like, another Titan and sort of get the snowball rolling. I I agree with the premise that you're main goal is to get Titan. I'm not sure if I'd necessarily agree with your suggestion, your, your question chain, that what we're trying to do is is enable this amulet kill with Sun Home and whatnot. Sure. It's not, it's not like your default thinking is like, I'm going to put some pressure on them. It's a kind of like, it's it's much more uh, scenario dependent. 100%, yes. Weird. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I mean, this is, this is the sequence that I feel like I see the most as someone who receives Amulet and over the years have seen the most out of Amulet across all the different eras, right? Right. And, and maybe w- what I will give you, though, is that I think it's really important to understand this line as you're learning this deck because this is one of the basic and, and maybe one of the simpler lines that yeah. if you understand how to organize your triggers and sequence your lands, this is how you can get someone dead out of nowhere, basically. Right. So if someone is not very familiar with playing against this deck, they'll all of a sudden be like, oh my god, what do you mean I take 8? Or what do you mean I take 20? Like, it can happen, and, and that's, that's, that's how it goes. It can happen to you. But I do think it's one of the most simple ones. You're right. The, the next thing that I think that this deck has, and it didn't used to have in the same deck as Amulet, really, is Valakut. And so when Dryad of the Elysian Grove was printed that brought Prismatic Omen and an extra land drop on a single creature, suddenly the deck was really easily uh, able to integrate a plan that includes Valakut as part of it as well. And Valakut does a lot of different things for this this deck. Sometimes you're just hitting somebody with it and doing a bunch of kills early on with it, and maybe, maybe you hit someone only for 16 and you need the extra damage, and so you end up doing that on the next turn or something like that. The other thing that happens with Valakut sometimes is that you sweep someone's board if they have a lot of creatures which came up a lot for me when i was playing definitely against decks like uh, elementals that tends to have like four or five different creatures on the board pretty quickly themselves you know if you get off to a kind of slow start valakit can help bring you back in the game by taking out their board as well so um while the amulet version is kind of like the main engine and the main powerhouse of the deck. This Valakut plan that used to mostly be in the scape shift versions of Titan is now available in this deck as well, thanks to Dryad, which is the second best creature in the deck, probably. I think we'd all agree. Yeah, and what's wild about it is because of the tutoring aspect of the deck, like you can just, you can just throw a couple of Valakut 
in there. Like, this isn't like a four Valakid deck. It's just like, hey, I can have a couple of them. And then maybe if I get a Vesuva, I can just copy another one of them. It's just like, it's it's such such a flexible deck because of the land tutor aspect. Yeah. I've seen amulet lists that just run the single Valakid with Vesuva. And just to maybe highlight both of your points, with Dryad of the Lysian Grove, your Valakid is free. You don't have any actual mountains in this deck that would right. traditionally trigger Valakid. So if the Dryad isn't on the board, Valakid is you know a non-basic mountain, essentially. But when Dryad's online, then it's doing a whole bunch of nonsense that they've listed off. Yeah. Absolutely. And then I think that the third thing that this deck or all of these decks are really trying to do is generic other ramp target kill dot deck, right? So every deck I think needs a backup plan, right? And this deck is constantly looking for what its secondary threat package is supposed to be, or maybe tertiary threat package, really, if you think about Amulet in prime time as the main one to do that big kill, Valakit to be the second one, which is sort of like the backup. And then there's a third one. There's a lot of really good other ramp targets around in modern right now, and uh, Primeval Titan decks are generally running something else like that. It changes over time, right? Like occasionally it becomes really popular to run Karn the Great Creator in this deck. That's a well-known additional package that gives the deck an extra dimension. Recently, uh, Cultivator Colossus has been a a card that's been making a lot of flashy, flashy waves and great great screenshots, essentially, uh, from, from this deck as well, because it's just kind of another thing that does the exact same thing that Primeval Titan does, which is take advantage of your deck having a ton of lands in it. But I don't know if there are any other kind of backup plans that you all are familiar with or remember from the past, but that's just the kind of third thing that I see in this deck. Yeah, those those are good ones. Good list. I mean, I will say the Cultivator Colossus, I played a one of in my Karn version. I hit six straight lands, because why not? Like just this, the first time I cast in a good it. way, right? Right, you hit six lands in a good way. Yeah, in a good way. Yeah, yeah. It's just like yeah. Beep, 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 perfect scoop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we can talk about it a little bit more later, but I had an absurd turn three because of Cultivator Colossus in one deck where in one game where I ended up casting three Cultivator Colossuses, two Primeval Titans. I ended up with fifteen, fifteen cultivator classes because that's how many lands i ended up getting into play off of them and then just valicated someone to death basically with all the triggers is what where it where it ended up going can you slay your stronghold a cultivator colossus sometimes i definitely have yeah uh, especially when you know i didn't draw into prime time but i had good good ramp like that's that's what the card is there for and so you just kind of like back your way into it you have to draw the slayer's uh stronghold of course like randomly have that but it it happened and it has trample because it's a big green beater that's right. Yeah, it can happen to you. So, so like we said, so these are these are the, the overall plans that the deck is, is trying to do. But the big thing that this deck is really trying to do is get as much mana going as fast as possible so that you can do these things as fast as possible. And that is where a lot of different things come in. The linchpin, of course, of this whole plan is the combination of Vigor plus Bounce Lands plus creatures that enable you to have additional land drops such as Azusa and Dryad of the Elysian Grove. We can go deeper on that in a little bit, but that's kind of like the overall story of what Primeval Titan decks are trying to do in this configuration. For sure. I think this is a really good time to kind of give this deck some of the credit that it deserves. It is really hard to play. I totally agree. Yeah, the, the lines are just novel to the deck. Like the way that you have to think about the deck and the pieces that you're using you don't use another decks like this. So it's just like, this is something that requires you to pay attention to it and learn it. And you can't just be like, okay, I know a creature deck 
or I yeah. know how aggro decks work, or I know how a mid-range deck works. I know how to thought see someone. This is just like, oh, I don't know how bounce land sequencing along with amulet of vigor works when combined with uh dryad of the elysian grove letting me play an extra land it's just like everything is novel to this deck and and honestly unique to this deck and so that's why it's just i think so hard to pick up is because it's just a new world to explore of magic and that's cool that's cool to have that yeah i I think it's daunting as well and and that may even be one of the reasons why we were a little gun shy about playing this deck in in all these years. And I think not only is it daunting to pick up, but sometimes it's just hard to understand what's even happening across the table from you because it can occasionally kill you out of nowhere with seemingly a single land drop that basically takes you by surprise and suddenly your opponent can seem to do 20 different things. And and it really forces you or or maybe teaches you depending on your point of view to think about modern in this very unique aspect that we compared it to Tron, but it's almost to me like if Tron and and Storm had a love child <laughs> where you both need to set up a very specific resource engine that then allows you to kind of go off in a single turn to to have a what appears like a combo kill out of nowhere, but that combo kill can actually have be fueled by creatures, it can be fueled by bolts in the form of Valica triggers. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think Amulet can get an edge from people who are not really like experienced modern players by being weird. Just like mm-hmm. it's just like it's hard harder for newer players to pick up. I think it also can prey on newer players not really knowing what this deck is capable of. And even if you're like a moderately experienced player, a lot of times when I don't want to engage with a game heavily and someone's on Amulet, I'm just kind of like, eh, like you're you're doing stuff. And I'm I'm and like I'm assuming what you're doing is legal, and I'm just going to see what happens um, because I I don't want to think two or three turns ahead in this exact game. But that's the kind of thing you have to, and I think that that's what is kind of harder about modern sometimes is like this is just one of those decks that is weird and different, and you have to know how it works if you want to beat it. Yeah, and I think the deck evolves in the middle of a game as you play it. Where the first couple turns remind me of of Tron, where you're trying to set up your resources in a certain way to basically get you to one of your multiple payoffs. But then you reach a certain point on turn three or four where I think it starts to operate almost like a control deck, where you have this toolbox of lands that you can occasionally fetch to solve very specific problems that are happening within the individual game. So this is the deck that will reward players for knowing when to prioritize a Cavern of Souls because you're in a control matchup, perhaps, or a Radiant Fountain if you're in a burn or or against a very aggressive deck that is pressuring your life total. Likewise, Castle Garenbrig, I think, was a big addition to this deck. I don't recall if we specifically mentioned it as a really powerful ramp tool that pairs well with all of your other ramp tools. Stan, are you saying there's a powerful tool in Throne of Eldraine? I think this is the one, yeah. It's so weird. Man, Throne was such an underpowered set. Yeah, and what's interesting is that there's a lot of redundancy among the lands because at least eight of them are the bounce lands, but then there's all these one-ofs like Vesuva or Valakit or you know sometimes Teleria West is a one-of, Radiant Fountain, Crumbling Vestige that do different little things and sometimes you're taking lands out post-board and bringing in things like Bachuca Bogs or Cavern of Souls so that your lands are very much part of your interactive strategy in addition to your actual combo and win condition. 
Yeah, that was one of the biggest things that you mentioned to me when I was first trying to figure out what to do with this deck is like when you're sideboarding, start taking your lands out. Like you you can take lands out was like a huge light bulb to me because I was like, I don't know how to fit any of my sideboard cards in. Well, some of your lands aren't really good in certain situations. Like there's not really a reason to keep Cavern of Souls in against a deck that's not going to have any counters counter spells and so when you have a deck that has 33 lands in it anyway mm -hmm. like the build i was playing did to start in pre-board uh yeah go ahead and take those out if you need force of vigor or whatever like do do that instead it's going to be fine yeah this really takes advantage of the lands having spell-like effects like you said, like that's what enables this to sort of be a toolbox deck, not only with the lands, but if you play the Karn version as well, you have the, the toolbox aspect as well. So it's super flexible, and because of the many, many, many years of lands we have access to in Modern, like you're going to have access to any one you want. So you can you can make it work like you want and, and take it and metagame with your land selection. Yeah. Speaking of lands, I think it's also really important to recognize that this is an aggro deck in the DNA. And there are sometimes these games where, you know, turns one, two, and three, it almost looks like the Titan player isn't doing anything because they're just putting down lands and generating a resource center, so to speak. But I think one of the things that separates the more skilled Titan players from beginners like us is knowing how those early lands you play and the and, and the mana that you set up for future turns is part of your big play that's going to happen on turn three or later that will sometimes win on the spot or basically put your opponents to check that even if you're not swinging for lethal with Titan the turn you cast it, there are positions where because you played your lands really early on, you can get a Titan out really quick. And if your opponent doesn't answer on the spot, then he's just going to win on the crackback. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing that I would say, you know, you should you should definitely keep in mind is, you know, yes, everybody thinks that you want to win with Amulet Titan on turn two, right? Everybody wants to do that because it's sweet, it's a good story, it feels really powerful. It's very hard for your opponent to do something about that, of course. But there are lots of games that I played with this where, like, I would win a game on turn eight or whatever. And some of that's because, or win a game by casting prime time into prime time without amulet out but just through like castle garen brig and arboreal grazier getting me to enough lands out early enough where i was still a little bit ahead of curve but not you know being totally abusive where i'm doing crazy stuff and bouncing and untapping and all that kind of stuff as well you don't only have i personally i don't think that you only have to win with the unfair plan with this deck right and because it has so many of these pesky nuances it's really easy for this deck to sort of blow up in your face if you're not thinking about all the effects that you have access to. And for me, at least, when I was first learning how to play it, I knew that one of the most frequent mistakes that I would make is I would just end a turn with eight cards in my hand because I would run out of bounce land a little too soon. And if you're on the draw and you play, sometimes you play a bounce land on turn two, put a forest back in your hand that you started the game with, it's like, oh no, now I have to discard one of my lands, which maybe if you have a hand with five lands, you can get away with that. But other times it feels like, like, you, made like a mistake. you made a huge mistake because those lands are going to come in handy for whatever you're ramping into. Yeah. 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 Bounce land manipulation, I think, is actually the hardest <laughs> hardest part of this deck. It's just, it's so hard to like know how to use them correctly. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. 
Yeah, it's and it's not just that, you know, managing amulet triggers. I would argue this is a little harder online because you have to know what order to click things into, whereas in paper you can verbally shortcut things. And I think people, especially in modern, have an understanding of what amulet is doing. So you can just play your Karoo land and just say what you're doing. And then most yeah. time people will trust you. But even sequencing your creatures, especially your dryads or some cases your titans or azuzas, if you do that incorrectly, you might not lose per se, but you will set yourself back and maybe slow yourself down by a turn or two because yeah, you know those creatures are really powerful, not at only at fixing your mana, but in ramping you out, but actually enabling what some of these toolbox lands are capable of too. Yeah, and I think this is really where that Tron comparison comes in, right? And this is something that people say a lot of Amulet, and I think I heard you guys share this feeling where it's just solving a puzzle every game, where you have this opening hand, and it's like, can I keep a six-lander? If some of these lands are Urza Saga and, and, and Bounce Lands, and trying to understand what the puzzle pieces in, in your first few turns, what sort of picture they're going to create um, over the course of the game. Whereas the difference between this and Tron is, you know, once you make Tron, the, that deck plays itself. Sure. You know, it's like, okay, great. Karn liberated on turn three, go. With Amulet Titan, because it has the combo and the control and the aggro aspects, you have so many more decision trees. And you really have to understand the format and sort of understand the position that is either going to keep you alive longer or help you stabilize, or maybe kill your opponent as quickly as possible. And knowing when to va- navigate those three directions is the thing that makes this deck both really powerful, but also so, so complicated. Yeah, it just makes you work for it, because you have colored mana. So it's like, hey, you can do more, and you have access to like this land toolbox, but because you're not just using the Urza lands, you've got to piece this stuff together in a, in, a, in a different way. And so for you to have access to Primeval Titan and so many lands of different colors, like, yeah, you, you can't just you can't just play the Urza lands. So make you jump through a few more hoops. Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing about this deck right now, too, that we should go back to, it's like, it's always been pretty consistent, especially with, from, the, from the people who really know how to play it right but right now it feels like i don't know how you could make this deck any more consistent than it is right now unless they literally printed a card that was like prime time like a smaller version of prime time like if elvish reclaimer was 25 percent even better than it was and it was a shoe in for that secondary threat slot but you know the deck has it's like the most rule of eight deck that there is you have eight amulets basically because of saga and and amulet itself and saga is like an uncounterable amulet so being able to play that and then delay a little bit get that to come out through counter magic and then maybe get to do your stuff is wild um you know you can have up to eight rampy creatures if you want i mean i don't count arboreal grazer in that i'm kind of talking about azusa and dryad in that the decks don't typically run uh, a full pack of those generally then you have primeval titan plus like Cultivator Colossus or Karn is like your backup payoff. So you have eight of your payoffs as well. Plus you have Summoner's Pact to be able to like glue everything together depending on when you can do it. Um, And then you have all the the lands themselves and the bounce lands are hugely important to be able to be redundant. And so the deck is really, really tight right now as far as the actual construction itself goes. Yeah, the flex spots that we tend to see are whether or not you want to play an expedition map, how many 
copies of Explore you want to run. Or Grazier. Like I've noticed some decks that don't have a full pack of those or that don't, or that have Explore instead of Grazier or things like that. (laughs) But I think that the weird thing about this is because the parts are so, so redundant, you do keep it, keep uh, mall decisions are pretty tough with this deck, I think, especially when you're starting out. And so what do we, can we talk a little bit about some keeper mall or should we save that until later? We can try. Let's let's do it. Okay, sure. Because this deck has a range of keepable hands. Right. It's, it's not like Tron in that you want to look at how do you get to seven mana on turn three. I think the range can fit. You know, post board. What am I doing to deal with whatever my opponents are doing? Like, can do I have a path to a toolbox land? Or sometimes in game mm-hmm. one, it's how do I make mana as quickly as possible and then try to find the payoff or how do I get to a Teleria West or a Summoner's Pact as quickly as possible, et cetera. So my big question here is totally understand what you mean, Stan, about like trying to be adaptive and having a game plan. But if we think about the best hands versus like the tier two hands and things like that, the one thing we talked about with Hammer, for example, a couple of times is that it's actually pretty easy to find a Hammer in Hammer mm-hmm. time, right? Like you pretty much can get that equipment whenever you want. The The, the sort of sticking point with hammer is the cheat effects are harder to get they're not as tutorable you know but the thing that lets you cheat it on is really the limiting factor to the deck what do we think that that is in this deck you know I i had a lot of times where i was like well i have a hand that can make a ton of mana early on but i don't have a payoff i don't have primeval titan or cultivator colossus you know and we talked about this with tron too where it's kind of like you just want to keep a hand that makes tron and then hope that you draw into a payoff right like that's that's the thing you you don't maul a hand that you know is going to get tron because you don't have um karn liberated for example you don't have something to do with seven mana the what do you think here? Like, do we keep a hand that just makes a bunch of mana and trust that we're going to draw one of our payoffs? Do we try to make a game like that into Dryad? Like, what's the the axis that we're working on here? Is Amulet just better than everything else? And hands that have Amulet, we should just pretty much keep almost regardless of what's going on with them? Or what? Uh, how do you think about that after playing it for a minute? I think that you don't have to prioritize threats in your opening hand. I think you have to prioritize the engine. If you If you have... A threat and lands, cool. But I, you know, to to evoke your hammer comparison, I actually think this does have some redundancy with with threats because, in addition to the actual titans or the colossus, you know, the creatures in particular, you have four summoners packed, and you even have some redundancy for summoners packed with Teleria West, right? So even if you don't find a big trampler, sometimes you'll just find Azusa. And then Azusa opens your deck up a little bit more too into what you need to draw into. It expands the the best top decks. It, it doesn't limit right. them per se. So that's why, in my mind, anything with lands and an amulet is usually good to go. And then you can sort of trust your deck to eventually find you, you know, a way to win. That that, that was at least you know what my gut told me after playing with it a little bit. Yeah, and then there's some other like more obvious kind of ships that you have to do that come up occasionally with this deck that you should keep in mind. Like there are some hands that just, it's almost like no matter how good your hand is, 
you you can't keep a hand that does that has only bounce lands. Yes, right, because you you literally can't do anything. You you just can't play. You, you can't play lands literally. You can't play a land. So bounce hands early on, they're not really they're not really lands. Like you kind of need a couple of lands that you can play and a bounce land to be able to be in the best position. Even having one land that you can play and a couple of bounce lands can be dicey depending on how it's enabled by the rest of your hand. I think. Did you guys ever find yourself in a position where you had a turn one Urza Saga and then bounce lands from there and you had to decide whether or not you're willing to delay how quickly you get the amulet of vigor because you can ramp faster or you can, you know, kind of hold back your lands and try to get an amulet down? Yeah, constantly. I feel like that was a major point of tension. Like I I I I want to talk a little bit more about the bounce land conundrum. And I feel like Whenever I play against someone who knows what they're doing with Valakit, I just feel like the bounce lands are not a hindrance to them at all. Like they're just, and I think it, I think it really comes into play when you have a Dryad or particularly an Azusa, where it, it feels like it's not a hindrance because you're making so much mana with the multiple ETBs and well, like the multiple times that you can tap them for two mana, they come back to your hand that you bring the play them again, you get two more mana out of them. So it's like, okay, you're not actually having, causing any issues here. But I felt like any time I didn't have the the ability with an amulet in play to play multiple lands a turn, it's like, why do I have these these silly bounce lands? Like they just they felt so bad, and I felt like maybe I was just doing something wrong. Or it's like I don't know how to properly use these tools uh, because I'm just sort of like bouncing crap back to my hand and like sort of having really slow mana development. Yeah, it's funny. They that's kind of how I felt at, at first and maybe maybe I'm too optimistic on them now, but I do think that you know, they are still soul lands, right? And if you can go turn 1 for and you know, in an, in a less ideal keep where you're like, okay, I don't have amulet, maybe I go like turn 1 forest into arboreal grazier into play a bounce land and return the forest to your hand, that's still a powerful opening, even if you don't necessarily have a line into amulet, you know what I mean, right away, because you're going to be able to make a bunch of mana. You get, to, you get to have three mana on turn turn two, which is similar to what would happen with Grazier, you know, land, land, plus a land drop as well. But, um, you know, being able to ramp like that is is still really good. And those cards, can they can help you do that in a way that doesn't slow down your mana development. The thing that's tough with them is just if you draw too many of them, right? Because really having a couple around is okay. Too many too soon. Too many too soon. Because yeah. you get to a point where you just want as many bounce lands as possible. Yeah. Especially if you have Valakit out and you're like, okay, I'm just going to play a bunch of drops and just make a bunch of triggers. Yeah. So, I mean, it does help you get to the natural non-amulet uh, Castle Garen Brig into Primeval Titan before Curve kind of hands, which I think is actually an, not an underrated, but it's like the, the fair version, backup plan version of this if you have a bad keep, essentially. Yeah. I th- also think that with the exception of an actual no-lander, no one's keeping no-landers except, you know, Belcher. You can keep hands where you need to top deck a land too. When you're playing more than 30 lands, you can like sometimes keep a sketchy two lander because chances are you're going to start drawing lands off the top like within a turn or two. And I think that's also really important where maybe you have a hand that's like Sumner's Pact, Titan, Amulet, and you know, one or two lands on top of that. You're probably going to just draw lands, you know, for a while after that. Yeah. 
still can't keep one that's bounce land, bounce land. Right. That stuff, right? You have to have one land that, even if it's Garenbrig and you're like, okay, I have to take off turn one, but I don't want to mull the five or something like that. Like, I think you can kind of do that kind of stuff and just be behind a turn. But. Well, that's because an opening hand that's all bounce lands is functionally a no lander. Right, exactly. Yeah, which is true. what we cannot keep, right? Because you need, you want to be able to ideally play a land every turn because when you're doing that, you are getting eventually getting to the point where you're either playing multiple lands every turn or getting to the point where you're playing you know lands that produce two or more mana every turn. Yep. I say two or more yep. because if you have a double amulet out, your bounce lands are producing four mana, and that is pretty nice. Yeah, pretty nice. But wow, is it frustrating when you have that going and you're like, okay, I have no... Th- Nothing to do with this. Nothing I can do with this mana right now where I'm like trusting the deck, but you still kind of fizzle because you have all the mana in the world, but not, no cards. You all, I, I feel like my my early game is so heavily dependent on the mana ramp creatures, like the ones that let you play additional lands or like a Boreal Grazer that like spits the land out onto the battlefield. And I, I really want to pick your brain about something, okay? And what the heck is up with not four Azusas? <laughs> like, I, I feel like when I was, like, a few years ago, Azusa would bust this deck wide open. It's like, if they have an Azusa and you do not answer it, then they're playing three lands a turn. When combined with an amulet, or even sometimes without combined with an amulet, they're just ramping their mana and making so much mana when they have the bounce land scenario with the amulet in play that it just makes stuff go ham. But now Azusa is being shaved or being eliminated entirely at times. And I'm just like, how is this deck functioning without the ability to to make as much mana as I want with these bounce lands? Yeah, I didn't see too many where there were no Azusas, but I definitely see lists where there's two. Or one. For sure. I haven't seen too many. Is there some with one? Too? Yeah, she's, she's very marginal now. Yeah, yeah. I played a one Azusa deck. The one I'm looking at, you know, the first place of the Modern Challenge of November 27th was a one Azusa deck. Mm -hmm. I think there's a couple things going on here. One of them is Azusa is really easy to kill because it's a one two. So that's that's putting a lot of high reward, high risk. Like it's this might have changed dynamics a little bit with Fury being around so much and things like that. But you know, in a world of lightning bolts, Dryad is a is a better option you know what i mean even in a world of unholy heats you know what i mean right yeah especially because it's hard you know it's hard to get unholy heat online before you can do what you're doing with this deck you know it's still a very good card against this deck against this deck don't get me wrong the other thing is that dryad because it has four toughness is really good at slowing down aggro decks that are trying to attack into you and so if you have a deck with you know, you're not going to find a lot of people who back in the day would have like prowess, uh, you know, that you would have the guts to block a prowess creature attacking into you with your dryad. But it is a deterrent for people who don't want to try to see if you're a calling station, basically, and swing in with their tiny creatures and be like, hey, are, you know, is my monastery switcher going to sur- survive? Or you have to throw a lightning bolt at the the dryad and also have the little creature hit it post block to be able to like have it have it actually kill the dryad so it it slows people down it's similar to arboreal grazer in that way where you know arboreal grazer is fine as a ramp spell and some people still play sakura stuff over it sakura scout right is that the yeah, card that's the one tribe scout and things like yeah. that yeah tribe scout that's the other thing but arboreal grazer is a good 
blocker. Really good blocker. It blocks Ragavan all day. It blocks Goblin Guide all day. And so ha- it even has reach, right? Like it, it'll buy you a turn against DRC. And if anyone's spending yep. a card to remove it, you are winning in that exchange. Yes. Hands like so far ahead yes. in that. So I think what's happened is Azusa becomes marginal to the deck because it doesn't provide as much defensive value as Grazier and Dryad do. And so it just as a way to shore yourself up against decks that are sometimes faster than you. You have these cards that are just good now. Yeah. I, I think it's also worth noting that Azusa was really good when the central core of your deck was turboing out Titan. But right. because Dryad does a reasonable Azusa impression. You know, the key difference that we need to acknowledge is Azusa lets you play two extra lands per turn. You can make three land drops with Azusa. Dryad, you can only make two. Azusa is really great at turboing out Titan, but, you know, the thing that we keep kind of mentioning is that Titan isn't always... Not only is it not your only win con, it's not necessarily your best win con in certain games, whereas Dryad opens up more of those opportunities, whereas Azusa is a bit more linear and forces the deck to be more linear when... It's growing power level is in how multifaceted it gets to be and how and perhaps less linear it is over time. And I guess I do feel like too, like Dryad giving you two land drops is sometimes like all you need. Like three can be overkill. Where it's like if you have two like if you have an extra land drop and the whole amulet thing going on, uh, then you do generate a lot of mana pretty early on and you're getting like those those turn three or turn four titans that are are, are plenty good. Yeah. And of course, uh, Dryad turns on. Yes, Valakut. Yes. Valakut. And so so you're always going to play Dryad first and then some number of Azusa from there. But I do think that that a lot of what we talked about is why you're, you're not all in on Azusa anymore. Yeah, I, I think there are situations where Azusa's worse than Explore, where she is a really good ramp tool, especially in those early first couple turns. But Explore gives you velocity. And when we're talking about keeping hands that are predominantly resource-based and then trying to find your win condition, Azusa doesn't necessarily enable that unless you have Teleria West, whereas Explore will sometimes draw you into the thing that you need to actually close out the game. Great question. Yep. I hope we got it right. I mean, I don't know. Like the, For me, it just we're talking a lot about kind of the opening game of Amulet, and I just feel like the pieces had to come together for me in like very obvious ways, or else I was feeling pretty futile. And I just so very often wanted like the i have an amulet i have a multi land drop creature and i have a bounce land and it's just like hey i can make a lot of mana here and that's and that's good or like i have the uh the land the colorless land that comes into play tapped and like makes another piece of mana for you and then yeah then when and then when you untap it with amulet you're effectively getting uh a soul land there and like that's very obvious right and i'm i'm curious what your all experience was in terms of these are the pieces i'm looking to come together and if you didn't have like the obvious stuff how often did things just sort of fall into place for you like, what were you looking to do? Does that make sense? Like, if I didn't have a dryad, or I didn't have, or I, I'm, or I didn't even have an amulet, like you're just like, I'm gonna hit land drops and see what happens. I mean, kind of, but I think that you have to keep openers where you sort of know what you're gonna do for the first few turns. You know what I mean? Where your first few turns are a, a, a step beyond just I will produce, you know, four mana on turn three, six mana on turn four. I think your opener should be like, I'm going to produce this res these types of resources, and I need to draw X, Y, or Z to actually have a plan beyond that. And I think that's kind of okay with this deck, whereas you know what you need to draw into, especially if that thing is a land, because you have ways to sometimes draw into them, 
and you have redundancy to find certain things. And whether it's one of your 12 threats, if it even if you even have that many, being able to actually have a plan early on, I think is one of the things that helps inform those keepable hands and also is the level up moments where you kind of realize like, oh, this is a hand that looks really slow at first, but if I drop, you know, any one of these five lands, then I can just go off. That's a vague answer. It's hard. <laughs> to a, yeah. a very specific question because the texture of your of your hands is is so vast. I don't I don't think I got there. Honestly, like I just don't I I'm still in the stage where I'm kind of like groping around a little bit. When I get a hand, I'm like, am I is this am I gonna and then sometimes it happens and I'm like, I don't even know how I did it, but I want but I <laughs> I want on turn three. Like I don't know how I did I didn't see it coming, but here here's what happened. You know, I mean the the most interesting hands to me, not most interesting, but the ones that are like the most super powerful when you're like turn one Urza's saga amulet go. Yeah. And then you're just like yeah. Like what, like, <laughs> you know, even if they blow up, you know, I played against people who had wear tear and they're like, well, I'm going to use my wear tear to get rid of your Urza saga right away, even though you already have amulet. Cause I can't wait until I have three mana to be able to get both of them. So that was always something that was kind of like, yeah, that's, that's an easy one. But when your opening draw is like Arboreal Grazier, Azusa, land, 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 prime time. And you're kind of like, <laughs> okay, like, I think I'm going to get there, but I might die before I get there and I don't have amulet, but I have a lot of drops. And so like, maybe it's going to be okay. Like, that's a snap that actually sounds like a decent hand. That sounds like a great hand because you're just going to draw lands. You're going to get Titan on turn three. I'm trying to imagine a bad key, a bad, you know, what's like a borderline keep and I did not describe a good borderline <laughs> keep. It's true. Or where you're like Azusa, Azusa, Dryad and four lands and you're kind of like, huh, well... I guess I do this because I'm going to have a ton of mana, but like, let's see where this goes, you know? Yeah. But that's the thing that, that Urza Saga has really changed about this deck so much is that, you know, because it's a land, you, you know, you can draw, you can draw expedition map, you can, you know, you can get to it in different ways to make sure that you get that amulet out and start going for it. Um, you know what I think the hardest card actually to play in this deck is? In a weird way, I kind of think Summoner's Pact is the hardest card to play. In this deck. This is what I was going to ask y'all is like, I've sort of come to equate Summoner's Pact with just a redundant Titan, but we know it's not just a redundant Titan. So, how were you all using it to success in getting other cards? Like, when were you like, I need to get a Dryad here, or even, or I want to get an Azusa here because it's it's worth it to me. And I'm going to one be, I'm going to also be able to pay for the, for the pact. Uh, after the fact, like when were you? When were you looking for that kind of stuff? I think in hands where you need to improve your ramp plan and you don't have a good creature to enable the ramping, that's where pacting for Azusa or Dryad is really relevant. Whereas pacting for Titan is when you have everything else, everything else lined up to just win in a turn or two. Yeah, I do think it's tricky though, because if you in those situations where I was thinking about using Summoner's Pact to draw Azusa or Dryad, right? I'm thinking about it. It's often because I'm mana constrained, and so then what you're doing is best case is Summoner's Pact turned th three. You get an extra, you know, cast Dryad, get an extra land drop, have five mana or have not five, have four mana going into the next turn. And then you've used your whole turn four to pay for the pack trigger and then dropped an extra two lands. And then you're going into turn five. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that that felt like 
not good to me. And then also casting some respect at that point in the game, I died a couple of times because people did tricky stuff to me in situations like that, where like someone randomly drops a field of ruin and I'm like, wait, who? Like what? Oh, and then you're just dead. And th- you never just died because you miscounted like me. I mean, I definitely came close a couple times where I was like, I can cast pack, but oh wait, I only have a Simic, uh, you know, growth chamber is the only green mana source I have. And I don't have another one that's going to be in play yep. if I do this. Yep, I have done that. I've, I've misbounced for sure. Yeah, I definitely had somebody, you know, I had somebody with a cryptic command return one of my lands to my hand on their turn, mm-hmm. which was just like, cool. I'm dead now. Thanks. Yeah. Bye. So it's tough, you know, like I worry, I, I'm pretty gun shy about Summoner's Pact casting it in those situations, unless I'm looking for Primeval Titan or Cultivator Colossus in the deck that I was playing. Well, I, I think you have to be a little braver. I, I did have those situations too, where I packed it aggressively for a Dryad and then they just killed a Dryad and all of a sudden I no longer have the mana to pay for the pack trigger. But maybe that's my own fault for maybe kind of showing my hand so aggressively. What I think this question is really good for is kind of serving as a reminder that Pact, Summoner's Pact, isn't just your win condition. It is also a ramp spell. And you can Mm. occasionally find yourself in those situations where the thing that you need for your deck to open up is finding a Dryad. And because you have a Pact of Negation, you'll get there, even if you're not necessarily Pacting for the Titan kill. Yeah. I think another thing that happened a lot late game was uh, I have had a good run with Titan, but they killed it. And maybe my, you know, second time I got an attack in, but they blocked or something. So they're not like super close to dying. They're less than 10 life, but I got a, I have a Valakit, but I don't have whatever, you know, I don't have, I don't have Dryad. You go get Dryad to turn Valakit online and then drop it. Like that seems like a no brainer, I know, but that's the situation that did come up sometimes where later in the game I'd be like, well, I just want to kill them with land drops. And so I'm going to get Dryad to do that and we're going to go from there. I think Pact for Azusa is really good when you're holding a bunch of lands and then you want to try to either top deck a way to get to Titan or something else. Whereas mm-hmm. Pact for Dryad is really good if maybe you only have one or two more hand lands in your hand. And then you use your your dryad as a way to fix your mana, pay for the pack trigger, and then do whatever else is on top of your deck. Sometimes you can just pact for Cultivator Colossus. You can ignore the Primeval Titan altogether because you have, you know, Dryad out, you have Valakit out, you don't have enough lands to turn your Valakit into a lightning bolt machine, but Cultivator Mm. Colossus because it draws you a card for every land you play and your deck is at least half lands, you'll just end up in a position. And, and this is what the screen, screenshots we're talking about are. Whereas you you know cheat in a, a, a Cultivator Colossus as quickly as possible and then you win on the spot without ever attacking because very, very quickly and suddenly you've turned your Valakid online. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the alternate threats for a minute. Cultivator Colossus, I'm going to read it since it's a new card. In case people don't know, it's four generic green, green, green for a star star trample. Cultivator Colossus's power and toughness are each equal to the number of lands you control. And then it says, when Cultivator Colossus enters the battlefield, you may put a land from your hand onto the battlefield tapped if you do draw a card and repeat this process. So this card is really cool, I think. I'm not sure how long it's going to stick around in this deck, but I had a lot of fun playing it because of what Stan said, which is basically like, 
you actually, if you have a hand that looks like it doesn't do much, you know, which happens sometimes in this deck where you you have five lands in play and your hand is five lands, you you can reload basically by using Cultivator Colossus to play those lands all at once and draw cards to replace those lands, including if you draw other cards that replace those lands you get to put those lands into play and then redraw for them again. So basically you kind of get to draw until you don't have any more until you haven't don't have any more lands in your hand, which is awesome because it means you can go through a ton of your deck. When I was talking about turn three playing three cultivator colossuses, I'd gone through more than 30 cards in my deck on turn turn three. <laughs> One thing I'd be really clear, because when this card was spoiled, a lot of people thought that you could just use a bounce land to go infinite. Mm -hmm. That is not how the timing on Cultivator Colossus works. You only get to play the lands out of your hand, replace those, and play more lands out of your hand. There's no triggers get to resolve in the middle of this or anything like that. So it's just kind of like one chain that happens from Cultivator Colossus, and you just kind of... Yeah, all, all the triggers sort of pile up. And it, it, yeah. I even found myself in some situations where it didn't necessarily matter how I ordered the triggers and like what how I sequenced my amulet triggers versus my Valica triggers because the Colossus is just going off in such a way that it's pure inevitability on that turn. Yeah. So I think it's a it's a good threat. It's a, sim it's a similar but different access to Primeval Titan. It lets you... It's one of the only things that lets you draw a lot of cards in this deck that can help you have some backup plans for when the Colossus is inevitably killed, most likely. Um, but, you know... These kind of secondary threats, they go, they come in and out of the Titan decks, and so who who knows how long this particular one will stay around if it does for real. It dies hard to dress down, of course. Yeah. I, I think the thing that makes Colossus interesting versus Karn, which is the, the next card we're going to talk about, is that Colossus gives you another way to be very explosive. Where Primeval Titan can be a super explosive thing, Colossus can be a very explosive thing. Whereas Karn is much more methodical. There's no Karn play that is explosive, but... I think we're also contractually obligated to talk about Karn because he sort of keeps coming and going from this deck and the jury's still out on whether or not those, you know, four-ish slots should be devoted to Karn or a mixture of Colossus and other other cards. So Shane, you played with Karn a little bit this time. I did. He, uh, I mean, he wasn't overly game-breaking for me. I think what, what Karn does is, one, it gives you something to do cheaply that still has an impact on the game. And because, like, you... All we're saying is your Dryad and your Grazers, they block well. That's really what you need in a Karn deck, is you cannot have small creatures picking off Karn, uh, especially even Flyers like Dryad has Reach, which is dope. And so it blocks small Flyers as well, though we're not, we're not in a heavy small Flyer metagame. It's like we're playing Spirits or something like Arboreal that. Arboreal has Reach, not Dryad, by the way, but yes. Did I say you Dryad? Did. I apologize, Arboreal Grazer, you amazing little one-drop, you. But, yeah, so I think Karn, Karn is really good in particular metagames because, one, it has you know the anti-artifact uh, de-synergy, where it just turns off your opponent's uh, activated abilities of various artifacts, which is really good. And then if you have any time at all, you can start attacking their mana base, or you can get down you know the ever- useful things like Ensnaring Bridge or Pithy Needle and all that kind of good stuff that Karn enables. I think one of the reasons that Karn is in not very popular right now is one regular old Greentron is not particularly well positioned. It hasn't gotten an upgrade for a few years. And two, Tron also doesn't have any way to protect against the very wide variety of small creature decks that we see in the metagame right now. So Amulet Titan does 
both things. One, it gives you mana to work with and fast mana to work with. And then also gives you blockers to protect Karn and get some stuff going for disruption. So I think that's really valuable and a really nice aspect of Karn in this deck. I mean, of course, I cannot speak to whether I think it's better or not, but I do think that it's a, it's a good tool and it's a good deck to use that tool. I, I, there's a huge thing here with, with Karn too, which is that it it really depends a lot on how good the static is, right? At different points in the metagame as well. And so in a world with a lot of hammer, it's kind of medium, right? Where like Karn is good sometimes because it makes you not able to equip hammer, but it doesn't stop people from cigartizating hammer into place. So you kind of get this weird middle road, right? Where um, it seems like it would be better against that deck, I think, than it is personally. I mean, is, Stony, that, is that right? Stony's good. Stony's perfectly good against Hammer, I think, okay. for sure. Especially if you are have if you have a game plan, and Titan usually does. Right. Yeah. I also like Karn in the face of Disruption. So, mm-hmm. where the Titan Dryad plan is actually very disruptable, with just a Blood Moon sometimes, or a Force of Vigor sometimes is a absolute blowout against... No, destruction, uh, yeah. Um, and so is Wear Tear, like sure. I said, which... You know, but but Karn, being four mana, you can just hard cast him into a Blood Moon sometimes, and then take over the game on a whole other angle because you have a really powerful sideboard and start blowing up opponents' lands or find a Worm Coil engine or you know maybe you can sequence your Karn and then play a Dryad to turn on your Rainbow Lands and then find an Engineered Explosive to deal with the problematic permanents. So right. I think Karn is a little bit more of a. Uh, a, a win condition that can also occasionally help you wiggle out of really sticky situations where you might otherwise just be totally dead because your opponents found a way to disrupt your your mana engine. Yeah, yeah. Both viable paths, I think, right now for this particular deck, and it really depends on what you think you're going to see. I mean, like I said, the jury's out. I think the interesting thing about Colossus right now is that we're not really in a Blood Moon metagame. They're there, but it's not like all the top decks are playing it. I mean, I'm certainly somebody who likes to play Blood Moon right now. And I feel like if I'm into it, it's getting pretty big because I'm a follower. Sure, but <laughs> I don't know. Like, if, if you look at the top decks being things like Hammer and Omnath Piles and, you know, Hardened Scales, like, if, if, the, if the best and most popular deck in the format was Murktide, mm-hmm. I might be more interested in Karn. But the fact that we have a very greedy format right now with people, so many people at the top of the meta being vulnerable to Blood Moon and still thriving, including Hammer, mm-hmm. I think that's why Colossus being a very explosive threat actually, you know, in my mind, is a little bit more enticing. Yeah. I just like it because it's sweet. Yeah, it's big and green. And playing with Karn is always like, okay, what sideboard card am I supposed to get here? Is this the one where I get Sky Sovereign or whatever that... <laughs> You know, I know that that's not in modern Karn, but it just makes reminds me of a historic, you know, get the boat that shocks something. You're like, eh. <laughs> the boat that shocks something. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit, because we're running out of time here. Should we talk a little bit about, like, maybe some quick hit things that we learned to always keep in mind when you're playing this deck? Because I, I have one that I would love to throw out right away, and we've talked about it a little bit. The hardest thing about this deck is managing outside of keep mole i think it's managing triggers technically on magic online and i think the number one thing you should always 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 do on magic online is put the bounce triggers 
on the stack first, so they resolve last. Now, what do I mean by that? First one in, last one out. Right. So when you get this huge stack of triggers on Magic Online, for now, when you're starting out with this deck, I would go and immediately take the bounce triggers and click those first so that they go to the stack. Um, that is so that you make sure that you don't have a couple of different things happen. There's two bad things that can happen if you misplace your bounce triggers here, uh, just off the top of my head. One is, and this is really easy to do when you first start out, is you bounce your land that you want to have untap with amulet. And so what happens is you don't get any, you don't get anything out of it because a lot of times you want to have that bounce land return to your hand because you want to replay it again with Azusa or with Dryad. If you misalign your triggers, what happens is it will return to your hand before it untaps. So you get no mana out of it. <laughs> yeah. Just have the amulet trigger on top. Make sure that that amulet trigger is on top. Now, the other thing that happens sometimes with bounce lands later in the game is... Stan, do you know what I'm about to say? Yes, but I'm going to let you say it. Valakut checks on resolution the number of mountains that you have in play. Are you referring to what happened to me at the store championship? I don't know if that happened to you at the store championship, but this happened to me in a league last night. This happened to you at the store championship? Yeah, so I'll just describe exactly what happened to me and how I basically didn't lose on the spot where opponent had the literal kill on the stack with Dryad on the board and multiple Valka triggers on the stack. If you blow up the Dryad in response, the triggers, the, the Valka triggers fizzle. Yeah. Yeah. And also what also happens is, yeah, Aaron, uh, Dive Down Nation member Aaron in the Twitch chat right now is pointing out that it checks twice. Yes, it checks once to put the trigger onto the stack. It checks a second time to actually deal the damage to the trigger resolving. It's because of a comma. Yes. The way the card is templated, because yeah. they put a comma in a certain spot <laughs> in the sentence. But at any rate, what it's really easy to do, if you get really excited when you're valicating someone and you're like, I got Valakut online, I'm going to play a bunch of about which happened to me the other day in a game, and I go to the Valakut triggers first, click those and target those at who I want those to be. They go on the stack first, then I have the bounce triggers, the lands bounce, and then Valakut triggers check to see how many mountains you have left. You have less than five. The, 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 the triggers don't deal any damage anymore. And I did this twice before I realized what was going on on Magic Online, that I was just totally screwing up my triggers. But this is another reason to just put the bounce triggers on first and also make sure you know how to play Valakut. But it's big, and it's a mistake that you can really easily make. All right, who else has one? Shane, what did you learn? Playing this deck? Yeah. Oh my gosh. What did you learn about like yourself? Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, wait. Before we do this, there's other like timing, like single sentence things I think that can help people. Before we get into Shane going, I hate this deck, which is not the question <laughs> right now. Did you have like a single like tips and tricks section that you could heuristics? Man, I, I don't. I don't have like an easy tips and tricks because I feel like I messed up a lot. Like I messed up a lot, a lot, a lot. Like there were packs I couldn't pay for because I was off by one mana. Like I was like, oh, I could I could summoner's pact and then get uh, this and I could get enough mana. This was like, oh no, I can't even cast the thing I thought. So I'm not the person to look to, I think, for, for quick tips. I definitely have a lot of questions. Well, one quick tip is 
uh, measure twice, cut once with this deck, kind of, right? Like, you need to plan a play almost more so than any other deck. And we say this all the time like, the deck is hard to play because you have to think about it. That's magic. But you really want to count how much mana you're going to have and what colors the mana is going to be. Because I think this deck can cause a little bit of like long, you know, like when you drive in a car for a long time and you kind of have that thousand yard stare, you have the thousand mana stare with this deck where you're like, I'm going to make a zillion mana. And then you realize, oh my God, I don't actually, after I have this monster turn, have enough green mana on the board anymore to be able to pay for my pact. That's something that you really should keep in mind. And it happens in lots of different ways in this deck, but you really want to plan ahead in detail what you're going to get on given turns. This is not a deck that you can learn how to play in a single league. Don't expect to fire up a league and just kind of figure it out. It's, I think, going to be more frustrating than it is enlightening. And this is the only deck where I think, that we've talked about in a while at least, where I think before you even like go into the practice room with it, you want to do solitaire mode with just... Pretty much, yeah. In MTGO, if you're playing this deck online, do solitaire mode first where you're not playing against anyone just to figure out what you're doing with those triggers and how to not make some of the, the easiest and stupidest mistakes, like ending a turn with eight cards in hand or whatever. Just because playing it technically online with the way Moto forces you to kind of understand every single nuance is the thing that can be really hard at first that is is perhaps a little easier in paper and th- and then do and then do practice mode so that you can start getting a little you know familiar with what you're supposed to be thinking about with your opening hands and then do a league that you're still going to suck at but at least you'll know what you should be thinking about and asking yourself and then watch your replays because you'll see all the places where you mismanaged your resources or sequenced something poorly. And then maybe, just maybe, on league number two, you will actually go 3-2 and have a free roll and, and a burrito. Mm-hmm. I was so disappointed because I you helped me out a little bit when I started to play this. Then we, we played some practice games. I played some solitaire. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to go play a league. I started league 2-0 and then rattled off like, five or six losses in a row across two more leagues where I was just like, I thought I had it for a couple minutes. Like I was really like those first couple matches. I was like, okay, I'm seeing how this works. And then I went to bed and woke up and the next day it was like, it was like I turned back into Cinderella or something. It was like, I totally missed it all. It was missing triggers all over the place and blam. Um, one last weird thing I would just throw out there as an observation that I had some trouble with here and there was, I think you have to be really careful with Boros Garrison, the card like you do not want to accidentally fetch this with prime time if you're like let's say you attack with like a non non broken prime time like you're not you didn't ramp it out you don't have amulet or something like that don't like randomly grab that card because it's the only way that you can pay for the activated abilities easily from Sun Home and Slayer Stronghold. And so later on, if you need that punch again in a second round with a with a prime time, you're gonna want to be able to do that. Now you have Vesuva that can help you go and get red and white. There's just not a lot of red mana in this deck. It's really it's only generated by Boros Garrison and Valakut. And so you have to keep an eye out for if you want to activate those utility lands, like being careful with when you grab it, I think is uh, important. Here's another lesson that I, I picked up, and it's hard to talk about specific lines and sequences, but rather something to just be aware of. Part of the power level of Vesuva is not only that it copies a Valakid or something else that's really good, is that you can change what Vesuva is and also keep an eye out for the opportunities where you can bounce back Vesuva and bring it back as something really good. And the power level of Vesuva also changes from game to game, where in a burn matchup, 
Vesuva plus a Bounce Land plus Radiant Fountain is just basically going to win you every match because you can like gain four, six, or more life in a single turn by copying it over and over, doing that with Radiant, you know, bouncing back Radiant Fountains periodically. But sometimes in the more controlling matchups, Vesuva needs to be a Valakit. Sometimes if you're going for that double amulet titan kill, Vesuva needs to be a Boros Garrison. And kind of keeping in mind that your Vesuva can change not just across matches, but even in the individual games because you're bouncing back your lands, I think is something that will help you win faster and identify ways to actually get out of otherwise tight situations. <sighs> Why is this deck so hard? Okay, hold on. You know what? I've, rather than just kind of dig into the hardness, like, why do you all think that Amulet is sort of seeing a resurgence right now? Because I feel like I felt like a dog in a lot of matchups. Mm. And, you know, one, I think you're going to feel like a dog when you don't know what the heck you're doing a lot of times. But two, I just sort of also felt like. Are you saying dogs don't know what they're doing? I mean, I don't know. You know, who's, there's no rule that says dogs can't play in a magic tournament. Dave. Th- that's true. Mm-hmm. You know, dogs mm-hmm. don't know that they're in movies. <laughs> true <laughs> no but they think they're just hanging out that's right <laughs> but um like with the resurgence of control like we saw 25 percent of the the six and three better meta being like some sort of control variant uh i felt really bad against control decks even you know, even oftentimes if I had access to a Cavern of Souls because they were, you know, bouncing my amulet and then countering it on the way back down or countering my dryad or all kind of the stuff that I need to get set up uh, is is being interacted with. So I don't know, did you guys experience that or is that something where it's just like, you know, my inexperience was was showing through? Like I was just like, and then Murktide is really popular, Unholy Heat and Counterspell are just like real messes against this deck. Uh, I, I felt like um, I was. I felt like I was pushing a particularly hard boulder up a steep hill. Mm. Sisyphus, Shaneophus. Oh, that, well, hold on. What? That's me. <laughs> That's Shane. You know, Murktide is a, is just a bad matchup. I think Murktide was actually the reason why when we did our episode with the folks from Mishra's Babel that F. Polish is talking about Amulet is unplayable. Also worth noting that the timeline between Amulet being unplayable in Modern and it being really good again was like two weeks because that's how quickly sometimes it can adapt as people understand what lands they should really be playing to solve their problems. I think Punt Then Wine is sometimes really critical in, in figuring out what what that configuration is. Mm-hmm. I, I think... You know, Shane, you, you you started with a question, which is what has led to Amulet's resurgence? I think Amulet fans don't go away. Because it's such a complicated deck and requires such a time and mental investment to kind of learn and get good at, whenever Amulet is good, you're going to have a very invested, bought-in community of players jump at the opportunity to play it again, as opposed to something like Burn that like almost anyone can play and pick up and, and, and do reasonably well, well with whenever it's playable. I think Amulet, you just have this loyal following that is eager to play it whenever they can because they're not doing, they're not scratching the Amulet Titan itch with any other deck. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I guess I feel like that there's those people that love Dredge and people that love Merfolk or like love any number of decks, right? But we don't see them showing up uh, in, in, in metas that might be particularly hostile to them. They just don't show up because they're not great decks, right? So I am interested in how Amulet's able to keep fighting through and do what it's doing in a in a, in a metagame that might have some kind of hostility against it. So I think it's just 
I think it goes to show the power of the deck and the lines that people can discover with it. But at the same time, I mean, it sounds like you're almost saying like people are going to play it, whether it's amazing or not. And then maybe some people just sort of uh, sift through the filter of meta of modern. I'm saying people will play it even when it's not amazing to figure out how they're supposed to put it together to actually just be at the top again. And yeah, I think part of that speaks to the power level of the individual pieces because dryad is so good at what it enables this deck to do because primeval titan is just the best six drop in the format (laughs) maybe weird maybe in all of magic weird um it brings four cards into play with it did you know i noticed i mean isn't it just kind of amazing that the thing that this deck needed to kind of come back was people recognizing how many cavern of souls they needed to run that seemed to be like all that changed is, oh, let's just play more caverns and suddenly we're back in the game and all we're really worried about, at least in the Murktide battle, is Unholy Heat. And then you can start thinking about when are we playing Bajuka Boggs, main or side. Yeah. I mean, you still don't want to lose your amulets and there's a lot of ways to kill a turn one amulet right now. Uh, but then you get to get around it with, get around counter magic at least with Urza Saga. So there is that balance there. I just think that the, the deck got enough of an upgrade from Modern Horizons 2 in the form of Urza Saga that it was able to keep up, as you said. And so Urza Saga was important. Playing Cavernous Souls was important. You know, when when Urza Saga first came out, there was a little bit of time where people were still not putting it in this deck. And then, you know, now they are. And I don't know about you, but I basically never made Karnstrucks with this deck. I really just only, I just ran it out there to get amulets and that's it. Exactly. So theoretically, there's a grind plan in here that you can do where you can make a couple of constructs and attack in, but I don't think that comes up that often. I, I do agree with you, Stan, though, that I think this deck will continue to be around because people want it to be around and people are invested in making it good and they're practiced at it. They're way more practiced at it than we are. And, you know, I still managed to feel pretty powerful in a couple of games here and there where I was like, wow, this deck is amazing. And then at other times I was like, that game wasn't good and I think it was my fault and not the deck's fault. I almost feel like that cult following is why this is going to be a safe deck to own as a casual spike, long-term barring bans. You, yeah, that's the you problem, know what I mean? Though. Like The uh, barring bans. As, as yeah. long as Primeval Titan is legal, I think there's always going to be people that are very good at Titan and, and by virtue of that, pretty good at Modern who are going to find ways to make it work and are testing new innovations basically as soon as they come out. Yeah. So, coming to the end of it, would you play this deck again? We did it for science. We played it because we hate, you know, multiple times we've all said that Primeval Titan is one of our least favorite cards in modern. Would you play this deck again just for fun without it being an assignment or or as a meta choice because you wanted to win? <laughs> Stan, you, you, are you, uh, you trying your sprinklers? <laughs> What's that noise? Uh, I... Shane's a so, hard okay, 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 okay. Hold on. I'm going to answer go, for, for, no, first, I'm gonna answer go for Shane. Shane is okay. a hard no right now. This time next year, he's going to own it in paper. No. And he's going to be a Titan master. I don't think so. I, I, this isn't the puzzle I like solving. These aren't, these aren't the, I just had, I had no fun. I really had no fun. And, and I'm not trying to like yuck anyone's yum here. I, I mean, it's just not for me. Um, and yeah, it, I think that's okay. I think it's, it's, it's fine. I mean, it's kind of the thing like, even if I felt like I, it was clicking for me and I knew what I was doing, it's just like, I don't care about solving this puzzle. Mm. Like, I don't, I don't, I mean, it's just like, it's not, 
it's not the kind of stuff. I don't like counting mana in this fashion. I don't like being like, okay, this is two plus two, and this is going to be one. And it's just like, no, I don't really care. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think I think it is a very cool deck. I think it's it's cool to have a completely novel axis of deck building and playing that I don't think anything else in the format does. So that's cool. Dave, you had fun with it though, right? I did kind of have Once fun it clicked, with it. especially. I'm a little worried that this is a live long enough to see yourself become the villain kind of situation for me. Well, no, I have a why? heart open at <laughs> Card Kingdom right now with everything I need no, you for do the not. deck in it. Dave, you're kidding me. Really? I don't know. I'm thinking about so it. So what, what, what clicked with you so much? Uh, I, I just thought it was different than other decks that I have and powerful. And like Stan said, it's been a staple for so long, but I do... I do get worried that this deck is going to get banned someday. I really do. Is is it just dead if Primetime doesn't exist? If, if Amulet and Dryad and Karn and like literally everything but Primeval Titan are banned. I'm sorry, if everything but Primeval Titan is legal, do you think that the Amulet tool and, and the surrounding tools within the deck aren't powerful enough to enable something good? No. I'm going to say... Yes. I'm going to say that there's something else that someone would make out of the core that would make a tier three mm-hmm. deck. Whoa. Tier three. I said like a tier three deck. Though, <laughs> I think I think people would oh, say yeah, It would try. be like okay. what happened to that other combo deck when, when Mana Monkey got banned. Adnos? Adnos, yeah. It'll, it'll just suffer the same fate as Adnos where someone will 5-0 with it and the Discord will get excited, but it won't necessarily be a prevailing threat. Exactly. Yeah, I could get this deck for free right now because of how much credit i have at card kingdom that's dangerous dave yeah sleep on it dave don't put on that dark path <laughs> oh i hit the paypal button too late no i'm kidding oh man stan i feel like you uh you had some fun with this one i just think that this deck is really important to understand and i'll say that i had fun in class like i i really liked going to the to class even if i don't want to be the teacher you liked auditing prime primeval titan yeah and i think it's really important to know how this deck works to see how it loses to know how you can beat it and if someone hands it to me i think it's valuable to know like just the basics so i don't make a fool out of myself i don't think this is the deck that i'm going to play for fun because i'm not an academic because i don't need to solve this puzzle but i think this is a a deck that makes you a better magic player if you know what you're doing with it even if you're not actually playing with it consistently i think that's fair and on that thought thanks for for going through this episode with us everybody it was a journey i felt like i felt like we were like taking a walk through amulet titan and just seeing the sights. Yeah, it was a, but a bit of a tour, a less of a strategy guide, but I think it was fun. Now, on your right, you'll notice the famous Castle Garenbrig. <laughs> and on your left <laughs> is the famous Boros Garrison. Radiant Fountain. <laughs> but that does wrap up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast, you can tweet us at The Dive Down, all one word. Our DMs are open. You can email thedivedown at gmail.com. You can also leave an audio message that may appear in a future episode of the show over at podinbox.com slash thedivedown. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down. We've ordered deck boxes. We ordered way too many of them, and it's going to be 
really easy to get them once they're in our hand. But that's only for patrons. Check that out. Patreon.com slash the dive down. Shout out to Manitraders for sponsoring our show. Sign up for a Manitraders subscription using promo code the dive down 2021, all one word, and get 15% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards. Amulet Titan, a very rentable deck. Mm-hmm. Not that expensive. Probably because relatively few MH2 cards. Going up a little bit because of Force of Vigor. But you can still get it with a, with a gold subscription, which I think is an important litmus test. Yeah, it was 800 tickets when I rented it this weekend for what it's worth. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and order your triggers! Triggers!